0: The following message is by Pastor Peter Cho of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. You know, we've come off the retreat this past weekend, and I was struggling a bit with you know what to speak on. I wanted to kind of see how the retreat went and how everyone was kind of processing and, re- and receiving Um, you know, the time that we had there. And we just come off the the series in the Book of Ruth, and and I wanted to stay in the Old Testament, this narrative genre, and and speak on the story of Naaman. And I'll be honest, this is probably going to be the hardest message I ever give, at least to this point, at ICC, because it it demands a lot of uh, humility and transparency. And so I'm going to get real, real, real with you today. Um, I'm going to share first a little story about how I got expelled from junior high school. <laughs> it's a little confession. Yes, your pastor was expelled from school. When I was in junior high, um, I was really hating life. I went to a Christian school up until sixth grade, and I started a new public school in seventh grade, and I, and I was a pretty scrawny kid, it's, and it was hard to believe. But I actually I wrestled a 107-pound weight class when I was a freshman in high school. That's how small I was. So in seventh grade, I was even smaller, and I got picked on a lot. And then I remember when I got to 8th grade, I was like, all right, I'm not the small fish in the big pond anymore, right? And I remember one Friday after school, I was getting in the bus, and I I intentionally didn't want to sit in the back of the bus. Nothing good happens in the back of the bus if anyone has been to public school. And I was trying to stay out of trouble. And then this little 7th grade kid, smaller than me, sits down next to me, and he has, I think it was like a trumpet case he played on uh, the band. And I was getting kind of annoyed because he brought this big case, and he sat it down. I'm like, there's no room for us. Can you just go sit over there? And he started giving me some attitude, and I was an 8th grader. I wasn't going to have any of that anymore, right? And so, I told him, no, you go sit over there. And one thing led to another. Long story short, I ended up punching him in the face. Like, right on the side of the head. And it wasn't like a full-fledged fight. It was just more of a scuffle. He was pushing me. I was pushing him, and and I got home Friday and really didn't think much about it, about it. And the following Monday, I get to school, and the principal sits down next to me while I'm eating lunch. And she asked me, did you, um, did you happen to see a fight on the bus on Friday? Did you witness that at all? And, and honest to God, i completely forgotten about that scuffle. And in my mind, I remember thinking, well, did anything happen in the back of the bus? not that I remember so I said honestly I said no I I don't remember a fight because to me that wasn't a fight right and then um, about an hour later I'm in class and I get called to the principal's office and I walk in and there's two chairs in the office and guess what the 7th grader is sitting on one of them and the principal says have a seat and she's trying to get down to the bottom of this because I'm trying to create some plausible deniability here And she says, finally, after this long conversation, she looks at me in the eye and says, Did you or did you not punch him in the face? And I looked at her, and I said, No. I didn't punch him. I just pushed him with my fist. (laughs) (laughs) And at that moment, I realized I would never have a career in law (laughs) because I couldn't even defend myself. Totally incriminated myself. I was suspended for three days. My mom freaked out. I start, she, she's screaming at me on the phone in the, vice, in the principal's office, and uh, I started crying in front of the 7th grader. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. But, you know, the truth is I didn't want to come to terms with what I had done because it would mean I had to admit to who I was. I was, I was the very person that I hated when I was in 7th grade. I was a big bully. And yet, not 12 months later, here I am bullying this little 7th grader. And I think, you know, what do we do when we're able to, um, unable to come clean with who we truly are? When we refuse to come face-to-face with the ugliness inside us and to confess before God and man, this is who I am. I need your help. And I think today's text in 2 Kings 5, it really speaks to this. Coming to face-to-face with who we are. And it speaks to what the gospel requires, but it also speaks to what the gospel provides. So if you have your Bibles, your phones, uh, if you can turn to 2 Kings 5, or you can follow along on the screen here, verses 1 through 15, we're going to read. And it says this, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord thus, and spoke, so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Assyria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who gives us understanding, insight into your word. Uh, we invite you, Lord, to this place. Speak to us, to our hearts, Lord, not just our minds. And let us receive, Lord, the word you have for us today. In humility and in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this story before. It's, I think it has all the elements of a story that children love, right? It's got, you know, a decorated soldier, a little girl hero, this man who's commanded to go swimming to get healed. What kid doesn't love going swimming, right? It's a great little story. But, you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate how powerful the gospel is portrayed in this little Bible story. And this entire narrative centers around um, this man named Naaman, which is a bit strange because Naaman is no ordinary guy. First of all, he's not an Israelite. He's a commander of the Syrian army. And this is notable because, for one, Syria and Israel were not on good terms, you know, to put it lightly. This is the time of the divided kingdom. Israel and Judah have split. And things are going from bad to worse, right? So in the light blue, we see the kingdom of Aram, which is Syria. And Damascus as its capital. And in Israel's history, we see one wicked king is followed by another wicked king, even more wicked than the one before. Things are going from bad to worse. And though Israel is a next-door neighbor to Syria, which is in the north, this isn't like Canada and the U.S., okay? This is not like, you know, there's really good diplomacy, there's good trade relations. It's not like, hey, we'll give you some maple syrup and oil. You give us some fast food and fast cars, and it's all good, right? No, this is like, hey we're going to come invade your land, we're going to kill all your men, we're going to steal all your women and children, and we're going to take them back to our land, and you're going to sit back and you're going to take it because we're stronger than you. And for the Jews, the very existence of Syria was a daily threat to their own existence. They, uh, so you can understand why they despised them. These nations were sworn enemies. And on top of this, we're told that Naaman is a commander of the Syrian army, not a captain, not a colonel, he's a commander. And this would be the equivalent of being the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? The highest ranking military officer of, of our armed forces. He's a general of generals. This is like Colin Powell, right? He's well decorated, uh, incredibly respected by his people, though probably uh, especially despised by. Uh, the people of Israel, for obvious reasons. But this is where I think the bad guy stereotype starts to fall apart. Because despite the fact that Naaman comes from an enemy nation, he actually appears to be a pretty good man, a good Gentile man, much like Boaz was in the book of Ruth during the time of Judges. judges. And we're told that in verse 1, he's a great man with his master and in high favor. He was successful in battle and a mighty man of valor. And God, the God of Israel was actually with him. But I love the way this sentence ends in verse 1. After detailing, you know, this long list of virtues and accomplishments, it closes with, but he was a leper. He was a leper. I think this describes all of us in a nutshell no matter how well respected we are, how honored we might be, regardless of our list of virtues or accomplishments, we all have our faults. We all have our flaws. We all have our blind spots, our blemishes. And so anytime we enter into a discussion about how great we are, I think it should always conclude with a similar disclaimer, right? But he was a sinner. And Naaman, he was plagued with this deadly disease, leprosy. And yet he's the strongest leader of a strong nation. He's feeling weak, broken. He's desperate for a cure. So desperate that he's willing to heed the advice of a little slave girl in his home that he had captured from a foreign land. She was truly a nobody. We we don't even know her name. And by the way, the fact that this little Israeli servant girl would seek the well-being of her foreign captor, I think says something about not just her, but about Naaman, doesn't it? You know, both his king and his slave loved him dearly, and they wanted to see him restored. How many of us can say that we are beloved by both our boss at work and the beggar who sits right outside our office building at work? Right? But this was Naaman. He was humble. He's a generous man. But despite being a good man, he's afflicted with this horrible disease. He is a dead man walking, and he wants to be made whole. You know, I can relate to this man in some ways. You know, not because I'm so accomplished or virtuous, but, you know, I spent many years climbing the corporate ladder, trying to build my resume, collecting degrees, serving the church, and very careful to make sure that everything looked good on the outside but what was happening on the inside. And maybe you can relate to Naaman too. Maybe you're a person of virtue, great accomplishments, respected and honored by your peers, blessed with wealth, have a title of position, power. And maybe you're the envy of everyone around you. And everything looks great on the outside, but the inside tells a different story. Underneath all that armor and badges of honor, There's a hidden disease. There's decay. There's death. And we may not share the same skin disease as Naaman, but we do share the same sin disease. It too carries a death sentence. And in our most most honest moments, we know it's our sin. Sin is the reason we're not who we should be. Sin is why we are broken and why we're living in a broken world. And of course, no one would be able to tell if they looked at our Facebook feed or our Instagram account Right? because there we can craft an image very carefully that this, our life is picture perfect. We're good people. But no matter how good things look on the outside, there comes a point where we all need to come to terms with the fact that we, we're not whole. We're all broken people on the inside. We're all deeply flawed. We're sinful. In this, se- in this sense, we are all Naaman's. But Naaman has enough self-awareness to realize that he needs help even help from an enemy. So he takes the unsolicited advice of this servant girl, and with the blessing of his king, he travels to see the king of Israel. And he's bringing a convoy of gifts and a letter that requests healing from his own king. And it tells us, so he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 changes of clothing. I have no idea how much that was. So I actually looked it up, converted the weights. That's 750 pounds of silver. It's about today's currency has to got $250,000 worth of silver. 150 pounds of gold. That's like $3.2 million worth of gold. So he's coming with a lot of great gifts, right? The king of Israel, King Joram's response to all this would be funny if it wasn't so sad. And it's a good thing that Naaman brings ten changes of clothes, right? Because the king of Israel rips his clothes right away in lament. And he's certain that the king of Syria is just trying to pick a fight with him. Right? Just like I did on the bus that day. He's convinced that this strange request for healing for his greatest commander is just a pretext for war. Right? And so Elisha gets wind of this and he tells King Joram, Relax. Put your clothes back on. Send him to me, right? You don't think there's a true prophet in Israel? Well, since you can't be convinced, I'm going to prove it to your enemies. There is a prophet in Israel who speaks for the living God, whom you have rejected. So this is the problem. We've defined the problem, and we see men who are seeking a solution. And now let's examine God's provision to this problem. This great commander, Naaman, he approaches the house of Elisha, and before he could even get there, he's met by a messenger sent by Elisha who simply tells him, Just go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. And Naaman is befuddled, right? Here's this great commander, he's coming in full regalia, this huge entourage. Transporting nearly a thousand pounds of silver and gold, and this prophet Elisha, he doesn't even bother to dignify him by coming out in person, walking a few feet and greeting him. Instead, what does he do? He sends a messenger to tell him, Hey, we know you're coming. Just go ahead and that Jordan River over there, just washing that seven times, it's all good. You'll be good. Right? And you can picture and he's like, Seriously, I've come all this way, and this is how you're going to greet me? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've brought? And his response, if you think about it, is, is so predictable and so proud. He's furious. And in this telling moment, we see that even one of the most humble men of that day possessed pride that could so easily be surfaced. And his greatest problem wasn't actually his leprosy, was it? In this tense moment, we see that his greatest problem was actually his pride. Our shallow external, our skin problems often have a way of exposing our deeper internal sin problems. Naaman is frustrated. He's angry. He's confused. But God's solutions to our biggest problems are not provided through means that we understand or terms that we can often accept because they have so little to do with us, our efforts, and they have everything to do with him. Now Naaman's response in verse 11 and 12 says, Behold, I thought, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand and cure the leper. Are not the Abana and Far, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage, it says. Now I want to stop for a moment right here because something really sets Naaman off. He's livid. And obviously this is not at all what he expected to find and certainly not the way that he thought he would be healed. And he says so, doesn't he? He's saying, really, you're saying all you know, I come all the way down here and you're going to ask me to swim in those nasty waters? I'm out of here. Forget it. But I don't think the issue here, the real issue, is so much the cleanliness of the waters, okay? It's not like this is the real Olympics and they're being asked to go into like, bacteria-infested waters, right? It's, it's something more than that. But I want to be careful in how I say this because the text is not extremely explicit here, but I think Naaman's complaint, about the cleanliness of the water is really just a smokescreen. I don't think he wants to go into the water at all. And it's not because he thinks the water is dirty, but I think it's for a completely different reason. You know, what we do know from the text is that Naaman's expectation was that Elisha was going to come out, he was just going to call upon his God and wave his hand and it would be done, cured. And this is how Naaman, in his mind, thought everything was going to go down. But now, though the request was so simple, the truth is he was being asked to do something that was going to require a lot of humility. In front of all these people, he was going to have to remove all of his armor. This wasn't just a badge of honor for him. His armor concealed the hideousness of his disease. And now, if he obeyed, everyone would see in broad daylight the horrors of his leprosy. Now, this is just a computer-animated graphic, but imagine if you looked like this. Would you want the world to see you? It's so easy to hide before, so easy to cover and conceal, but not now, not in this moment. The only way to be clean was for Naaman to come clean. And in some ways, it was a simple request, but in others, it was so hard, so difficult. He doesn't want to do it. He can't do it. And just as he's about to make this long trip back home, angry, his servants of all people say what? My father. It's a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Won't you do it? Has he actually said to you that you wash and be clean? It's very unusual for a servant to refer to their master as my father. Clearly, Naaman's relationship with his servants goes beyond the normal master servant relationship they really cared for him and they're saying look if he had asked you to do something really difficult really hard wouldn't you have done that without question but he's just saying to do this this simple task you'll be restored please do it and Naaman is moved by his servants I think and so he humbles himself and he follows through. And sure enough, by faith, upon obeying the instructions given to him, he, he's restored. He's made whole. He's healed. And this is the essence of the gospel, that we are made whole by accepting in humility the fact that we are unclean. We are not whole. And simply receiving God's word by faith that only he can heal us, no matter how simple or how strange his provision might be. The gospel is God's simple invitation to restoration. But it demands humility. It requires faith. You know, um, about... Over ten years ago, actually in 2005, I had my own form of leprosy, and it wasn't in a physical sense, um, but a very spiritual one. I was wrestling on my own with a very private sin, and I'm going to remove some of my armor here. It's very difficult to talk about it, it, you know, especially in front of mixed company. But I remember I struggled a lot with lust. I struggled with pornography. I found myself going through these repeated cycles of relapsing into this particular sin. And there would be weeks of victory, and then I'd find myself falling again. Setting my eyes on things I knew was inappropriate. I knew it was wrong. And, you know, at the time I'd share this with some guys, but um, I'm struggling with some lost issues. You know, uh, I realized I was always able to kind of share it on my own terms. Right, just vague enough where, oh yeah, brother, I'll pray for you. <laughs> but I didn't really have to expose how truly rotten I was inside. And I remember attending this men's conference, and you know we were talking about lust. That was the topic of the evening. And that evening, as I was praying, I just had this deep conviction that um, that I had set my own terms on how I was going to deal with this and. And the Lord was calling me in that moment to confess the sin, not just to him, but to my wife. And at the time, you know, I'd been married for like five years. And I was like, no, no way. <laughs> you know, my Kim is very pure. I don't want to corrupt her, <laughs> stumble her. And it was the last thing I wanted to do. And you know, Kim, like most women, I think she, you know when I, I remember um, we were driving in the car on this long trip, and I just confessed to her. I just dropped all my armor and I let her see you know the ugliness inside, and you know it's hard i 'll be honest it, it took time for um, for us to just rebuild trust in the relationship and to walk through that together but um, it was so God you know for the first time I just surrendered it to the Lord and I said not in my terms but your terms and I remember after that I was I felt free to share even with other men this burden and receive accountability in a way that I hadn't before and You know, I can't say I've never had a lustful thought since that, that day. But I can say that since that moment, I've experienced victory over that sin in ways that I never, ever thought was possible. And I realize when we set our own terms for redemption, you know, all we are met with is often frustration, failure. But when we humble ourselves, when we submit to God, we submit to his terms We experience freedom. We invite the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives over any stronghold, any sin. And I think that's one of the best things about this story is that you have this great military man who was set apart from others in so many ways and yet who chose to live in community under accountability. Though he was a great general, He was humble enough to allow others to speak into his life, whether it's this little Israelite slave girl or even these servants later who challenged him to simply do what was asked of him. These people, they they loved him dearly. They loved him enough to speak truth into his life when he needed to hear it, even at the risk of their own. And this is the very purpose of a community of faith. You know, it's very difficult for Kim and I to come back to an Asian church. You know, we spent six years at an American church before um, we came to ICC. And prior to that, we were were at a second-generation Korean church, and it was where we felt... I'm mean, going to be honest, it was really hard to be authentic, to be real, to invite people into your pain, your struggles, and sorrows um, without feeling out of place or judged. Um, I think this happens in every church to some degree. But you've probably heard this. A church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints. The gospel is not only an invitation to enter into a relationship with a living God, It's an invitation to enter into a community of faith. And as one of your pastors, this is my hope and prayer for our community, for this church. That we would be a body that cares more about saving souls than saving faiths. That we would believe that no sin, regardless of how shameful, is beyond the grace of God. That this place would not just be one of worship, but a safe place where we could be real, we could be broken, we could be honest, and we don't have to fear rejection, judgment, silence. You know, this past weekend we spent uh, uh, together at the retreat, and, um, you know, it was about caring for our souls. And uh, in some ways it was kind of intense, it was a little different than... Um, well, if you you were there, you know, right? So so you get in these groups, and there's some really deep questions that we got to ask one another. And and I know a lot of these groups that we formed within the retreat, they weren't intentionally. um, We mixed it up. So people would meet other people within the church. And I understand the awkwardness of coming together with people you hardly know and trying to really unpack um, these things that you're struggling with internally that are very private. And yet... um, it was such a great weekend and I hope it was the same for all of you that in these moments of sharing you know we each have to make decisions how much are we really going to open up how much are we going to divulge how much of our armor are we really going to strip down what will we allow people to see right I'm encouraged by uh, Pastor Reggie coming and, and Pastor Steve and just even the level of openness and honesty with their own personal struggles. Um, And I think as leaders, we want to set an example before all of you. Um, This community that we're trying to build, where we're not picture perfect, we're not trying to even pretend to be, we're a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And I just want to close um, by saying this. There's some of you in this room, you know, you hear this message and you probably are decided, I'm not going there. (laughs) I don't know what power you're talking about. I'm perfectly, you know, fine keeping my distance, personal space. (laughs) And I've been going to church my whole life and things have worked out just fine, so no thank you. But from this text, we see a problem of man, but we see provision of God. But what is the purpose? Why is this story here? And why would God bless Israel's enemies? What is this miraculous healing of a Syrian man doing in the middle of a Jewish book? You know, the nation of Israel vacillated between false gods in Elijah's days, and it was no better in the days of his successor, Elisha. First Kings 18.21, Elijah says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow him, but if Baal, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Not a word. This is the state of their hearts. You see, this entire passage is a stinging rebuke upon the nation of Israel. We see the king of Israel, who instead of relying upon his God, cowers in fear and desperation. We see God use a no-name servant girl from Israel, redeem a commander of one of Israel's greatest enemies. And we see God bring healing upon the same man who obeys him by faith and in humility. And the Israelites, they thought salvation was exclusive to them, but God shows them, no, salvation doesn't come through birthright. It's not going to come through your works or your efforts. It's going to come by faith. And it would come before anyone who humbles himself before God, who puts their trust in him, even the enemies of Israel. And things hadn't really changed from Elijah to Elisha's day, and they didn't really change in Jesus' day either. You know, sadly, in Luke 4, 27, Jesus himself refers to this story when he's in his hometown of Nazareth. He says, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And guess what? None of them, none of them was cleansed because Naaman, except Naaman the Syrian. You know what the response was? Immediately, they want to kill Jesus. Jesus unleashes a stinging rebuke just like Elisha did to the people of his day. No faith could be found in Israel and so God would redeem the ones the Jews despised. Samaritans, Gentiles, Syrians, tax collectors, prostitutes. King Joram is the king of Israel. He's a reflection of the people. They had rejected Elisha. They had rejected God. And yet they didn't realize why they never experienced victory in their life or witnessed God's glory. We fit one of these people, don't we? We're either the cowardly king, the courageous girl, the reluctant commander. I want to invite us to um, just bow your heads in prayer. It's so easy to be overcome with fear like this Israelite king. And sometimes we just need a wake-up call. Now, I wish I could soften it, but I can't. That's why this text is here, I think. This story isn't in the Bible to encourage the Syrians of that day. It's here to rebuke the Israelites who had convinced themselves that all was good when all was not. Lord loves you too much to allow you to continue in complacency. There are some in this room who have carried some heavy armor. You're concealing something deep, something dark, deep in your soul, and you're tired. Maybe you haven't experienced the power of God over a particular sin in your life because you're only willing to go so far to find redemption. You've set your own terms, and that's as far as you're willing to go. The Lord is inviting you to be restored, just as he restored Naaman. Humble yourself, trust him, obey, come, find your rest. There are some who have been coming to ICC for a long time now. But you haven't experienced true community here. Maybe you've set your own boundaries on how close you will get to others. Maybe you've been hurt before. Maybe you fear judgment, rejection, indifference. Maybe you're a part of this community, but you're not truly in community. The Lord is inviting you to experience healing just as Naaman did when he permitted others to lovingly speak into his life. The church is God's gift to his people. This body is made and designed to not just glorify God, but to edify his people. However, the Lord may be speaking to you, I'm inviting you to come to humble yourself, to obey in faith what he's calling you to do. To unveil yourself. To let God in, to let his people in to your life so that you might be restored, you might find healing, you might be made whole let's just pray for a few minutes and have the worship team close